All right, good morning, everybody. I'm continuing a, a series we started last week called New Creation. And so we've been using a scripture from uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, oh, sorry, five, chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So how many of you guys have experienced that new creation? Anybody experienced that? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, my, my beginning as a believer, I did not grow up in church, and so I started going to church when I was in my 20s. I had visited churches. I remember when I was six, my parents went to church for a little while, long enough for me to memorize a couple of scriptures and win a Bible. I remember I won a King James Bible, and I was, I don't know, I was six or seven, so that was super helpful, that King James Bible. Uh, Obviously, I didn't read it. I, could, <laughs> I couldn't understand regular speech, let alone 1600 speech. So uh, needless to say, it didn't catch on too much. And then again, I, got, I had an encounter with the Lord when I was in my 20s and, uh, and started going to church, started attending church, had an, a, an experience, gave my life to Jesus, trusted him for my salvation. As much as I could understand that, I did that. And then I started living as a Christian, right? And so obviously a bunch of us have done this. So the challenge was when I read this scripture, it says, if anyone is in Christ, and so I said, I'm, I'm, I'm in Christ. I made that decision. I prayed the prayer. I really meant it, or I think I really meant it. I hope I really meant it. And then doubt starts creeping in, as we were talking about before, about the, the accuser of the brethren coming in and say, are you really saved? Did God really say he loves you? You know, and he, All these questions would come up, and it became this battle that I, I was in. And then it said, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I would still find patterns in my life of the old. And so I began to question, did all, all the old things actually pass away? and have, behold, all things become new? And if I was honest, the answer was no. And part of the reason why is I actually didn't understand this scripture. Um, and most of the time, we don't understand what's happening. And so when Jesus, Jesus never said, pray this prayer and you'll be saved, there's nowhere in the New Testament where it says to do that. It's, it's something that began to happen in the um, Great Awakening when there were altar calls. Uh, they, they would create a moment for people to pray a prayer because they would be under conviction. And during that time, people would be under conviction sometimes for hours or even days. Literally, they would fall out into, into the floor. This is Jonathan Edwards uh, made note of this in the 1700s. People would fall out on the floor under the power of God. So this is happening long before modern revivals. And then they would lay there sometimes for a day or two days. They would literally just shut them up in the church and come back for the service the next day, and they were still there. Um, they created what they called a mourner's bench that would go along the side of the wall. So if you were under conviction of, of, of your sin, that you would go and sit there and shake or do whatever it was that God was doing to you, you know, dealing with the, the fact that you were a sinner and you know, trying to find salvation and all this stuff. And so, so they created this thing called an altar call, and then they also created this thing about the sinner's prayer. I have no problem with altar calls. I have no problem with the sinner's prayer, except for the danger is we come into this faith, and Jesus said, follow me for a reason, okay? And, and that means follow me because you, you're going to learn some things along the way, and at some point in this journey, as you're following me, you're going to come to a saving faith in Jesus. You are going to come to a place, or you're going to, you're going to come to a place where you need to make a decision about who he is and the implications of who he is and what he did on the cross on your behalf. That doesn't mean you're going to give your life to Jesus. The 12 disciples, um, I challenge you to go through the Gospels and tell me when the, the 12 disciples got saved. I challenge you to do that. 
It's very difficult, actually. So there's a couple of places you're like, I think this is it. I think this is it. But we, all, we know also that at some point, um, one of the disciples um, wasn't saved, <laughs> right? Because he, like, you know, he, he, he did some really, really bad things in the garden. So we, we, we recognize that just because you were close to Jesus and you followed him and you heard his teachings and you saw the things that he did, literally saw the miracles, crowds gathered around him, everybody's crying out, yeah, we're going to serve you. Peter's like, Lord, though everybody else you know, fail you, I will not fail you. And then Jesus says, literally tonight, Peter, you're going to do that, right? <laughs> and so we get this, you know, this, this arrogance about ourselves that, you know, Jesus, I got this, I got this. And the whole point behind Jesus, us walking with Jesus and coming to know him is to learn that we don't got this, right? And that he got this. Now, I don't even know what that language is. <laughs> but at some point, if you don't come to that understanding, you will, consent, you will continue to live in a faulty understanding of who God is and what he's done for you, and it will, it will create trouble through your entire life. And I know people literally who've been, who've been Christians or have been in church or have been serving the Lord for 20 years and have struggled with the idea of, am I actually even saved? And if you're honest, at some point, that, that thought has come up in your heart as well if you've, if you've served the Lord for any amount of time or been in church. So my question was, have things really become, uh, become new? And what I found was I was constantly in a consciousness of sin. In other words, I was always about missing the mark, and I never thought about the mark. Part of that was most of the preaching is about you're missing the mark, you, you heathen sinner, you know, um, you're, uh, what's the famous the phrase is, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And so the same accusation that the enemy was bringing, he was also bringing through leaders in church going, you're just a sinner, and that's what we heard. And then we totally blurt out the last part of, you're also saved by grace. And part of the reason why is because somewhere in our intellect, when we read this, the, the understanding or get the understanding of grace, we know you're either a sinner or you're saved by grace. You find in the Bible, when people start talking about church government, all these different things, you find in the Bible that, that, that there are very distinct uh, positions, if you will, very distinct uh, called out roles, if you will. So there are sinners, there are saints, there are, uh, we call it clergy and laity, and the Bible doesn't say that anywhere um, because your, your, your priesthood is with Jesus in yourself. You don't need me to be your priest. You don't need anybody else to stand on your behalf. Jesus did that for you. So the priesthood of all believers is something we believe in. Are there roles that we play? Elders, deacons, yes. So there's saints, there's sinners, there's elders, deacons. There's nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. And the truth is that you can't be an elder or a deacon if you're not a saint, Right? So really, there's two distinctions. There's a saint and there's a sinner. So which one are you? So if you, like, well, I prayed the prayer. Okay, which one are you? Just because you prayed a prayer doesn't mean that it's true. You know, you can say things all the time. doesn't mean they're true. So the whole idea behind this is if old things are going to pass away and things are, all things are going to become new, something has to happen. A new creation has to occur. John goes after this in a big way. It goes after it in different places in the Scripture. Jesus spoke to uh, Nicodemus, and he said, you must be born again. Nicodemus was a great man. He was a teacher in Israel. And he said, I don't understand how that works, right? How in the world can you be born again? And, he, and Jesus is clear to him. He said, you're born of the water, which is a natural birth, and then there's a spiritual birth that happens, a new birth that happens in you. And you can have one without the other. And so he starts to get it, and he explains it. He said, you can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see his effects. I shared earlier about when we we're talking about um, Veterans Day, about you know, John the Baptist saying, we need to have fruit in line with repentance. So he says just repentance is taking on a new mind. It's not being sorry for your sin because there's a whole other place in Scripture that goes after there are two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow that you got caught, 
<laughs> right? Which is the sorrow we see a lot of times online in, in modern cultures. Like, I, I got busted, and so I stand up and give the, you know, the proverbial apology, whether I meant it or not, I don't know. But I got caught, so I have to apologize to appear like I'm doing the right thing. So there's a sorrow of, of getting caught, and there's a, the Bible says there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. In other words, something happens when you're sorry for your sin. Something occurs where you begin to think differently about yourself. And I love Toski shared that, about learning about who God is, who I am in God, and what all this means. And so we go into this, and, and if we're not careful, we buy into this, well, I prayed a prayer one time, and, and, I, and I, so I got saved. Well, did you? I don't know that you did. I'm not saying you didn't. I'm just saying, do you know? Has there been fruit meet with the repentance? Jesus said it this way. He said, you're going to know a tree, not by what the tree calls itself, right? But the fruit that that tree produces. And so the question is, if you're a new creation, are you producing new creation type fruit in your life? So the challenge with that again is, if we get saved, Jesus said, follow me, learn of me. All this is about becoming a disciple is there's a moment where you're born as a baby, but just like a baby, you might not have your stuff together, <laughs> right? So new Christians do dumb things sometimes, and the enemy takes advantage of that and accuses them and says, you know what, are you actually even a Christian at all, right? And then religious people who, are, who have not had any change on the inside of their heart whatsoever, who have not actually repented, they said the words, like John the Baptist went after them, and he says, he says the, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and he was going after this whole fruit meet with repentance thing. He's like, the, the axe is there. It's ready. To, you're, it's about to be cut off. So if you're a tree not producing fruit, that tree is going to be cut down and cast into the flames. And that's when everybody started repenting, <laughs> right? They had an altar call moment with John the Baptist. And so he goes after that and he says, are you actually producing fruit? So you get accused if you're a new believer and you still fall into the patterns, your, some of your old thinking, your old ways of doing life. The enemy will come and say, you're actually not even saved. And then he will get you into this loop where you're trying to be something you already are. Right? The flip side of that is religious people who have no change on the inside of their heart, who are really good at following rules, will then look down their noses at you and accuse you of not having fruit meet for repentance when their heart is as dark as it gets and Jesus is going to lay the, the, the ax to that root. Right? But on the outside, they, they appear very, very holy. You see this because he goes after the, the, uh, the Pharisees in a big way. So, so the question then, and this is why it's so important, we're talking about a new creation. My association with the law, because I misunderstood all of this, when I gave my life to Jesus, what I did was I said, well, I, I, I trusted in Jesus for my salvation, but it doesn't seem like it's taken. <laughs> so I'm going to help Jesus by doing the right things, right? That way he will love me and, and grant to me, you know, continued salvation. Except I totally didn't understand Scripture and I totally didn't understand God. But I was living a pattern of, I've got to do the right thing. I've got to do the right thing. I keep doing the wrong thing. Why am I doing the wrong thing? Ah, uh, right? And so I, what I was doing was I'm, I was moving from a place of trust that someone had done something for me because the accuser of the brethren keeps coming and says, you know what, you're actually not even saved because, you know, what kind of person would do those kind of things, Right? So I still had patterns from my old way of thinking, but I had a new heart. And so often as a new creation, we get confused about this because nobody talks about it. So what we naturally do is we go back to the way we got saved in the first place, and we try to use that to continue to be saved. So how does that, how does that work? The law was given for a purpose, right? And we're going to get in. That's what we're going to talk about today. What was the purpose of the law? 
So let me just start by saying to, the, to you as a believer, if you are a believer in Christ, your relationship with the law is incredibly important, but it may not be what you think it is, right? So let's first give some context. Why was the law given? So the context of the law being given to the nation of Israel, and I don't have time to go into this in detail, but he gave this law, this covenant to, to the nation of Israel. Years before that, he, he, he had a covenant with a man named Abraham. And so let's talk about a covenant for a second. So what he would do in this covenant is he would, he would uh, covenants would be cut. They called it cutting a covenant. And so what you would do is you would take animals and you would cut them down the center, literally, right down the center of their body, you would cut them, which took a lot of work, right? Blood everywhere. They would lay those pieces open, and then you and the person you were cutting a covenant with would walk through the middle of that blood, this literally this rut filled with blood. And, and the, the promise was, if I don't obey the, the, uh, the uh, conditions of the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. So it was a promise, it was a contract, if you will, but it was cut in blood. There's no other way to do the covenant. It was a blood covenant. And it was designed to say, the life is in the blood, and if you disobey this covenant, your life will be taken because you're going to bleed. Right? That's what, that's what it was going after. This covenant that God cut with Abraham, he comes to him, and it's two things. It's irrevocable and it's eternal. When you look at covenants and you study covenants, some covenants are irrevocable, some covenants are revocable. Irrevocable means doesn't matter what Abraham did, the covenant was going to never be taken away from him. Here's what was interesting about the covenant with Abraham. Abraham cuts all the animals, he lays them open, he understands what he's doing because this is common in their day. He's about to, to cut a covenant with God Almighty and he's going to walk through and he's going to make the promise that if I disobey the rules of the covenant, whatever happened to these animals is going to happen to me. Except for, the Bible says in Genesis, that God put him to sleep. He put him in a deep sleep, and as he was in this deep sleep, he watched God symbolically walk through that blood covenant himself. He never got a chance to walk through that blood as Abraham. He didn't do it. God said, this covenant I'm making with you has nothing to do with you. I'm doing this in my own name. I'm cutting a covenant. You are only going to be the beneficiary of the covenant. Now think about that for a second. I like that covenant. How about you? Right? So it was irrevocable and it was eternal. There was no time limit on this covenant. There still is no time limit on this covenant. It is still in place. The covenant of Abraham is still in place. But it painted a picture of what the Bible calls the new covenant. And, it, and what's interesting is it takes that covenant and goes back and it looks at a promise. You actually see it in Revelation and a couple other places where John says, He's seeing things in the Spirit, and he says, before the foundation of time, a lamb was slain. What he's saying is, before the foundation of time, a covenant was cut, but who was it cut with? And it goes back, and you see this in Hebrews, because this really goes after this. He said, the covenant was cut between God and God. <laughs> right? And so, that covenant was irrevocable and eternal. And now, we get that covenant in Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross was he laid his he he bled on our behalf. His blood was laid down as a sacrifice for all, and there was a covenant cut 
on that day, right, and the Bible says when that occurred, when Jesus died on the cross, that in the temple, symbolically, because it was the time that the lambs are going to be slain, and it was a picture of something big, 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 way bigger than anybody realized, because it was going all the way back before humanity was ever even created, or even reality was created, there was a reality that was long before ours. And it, and, and it was a picture of that, and so in the temple, there was a big, huge curtain. Some people say it was two or three feet thick, and the idea behind the curtain was that was the holy of holies. That was the one place that if you had sin, you could not go. Once a year, the priest would go in there after having, um, after having all the sacrifices for himself and for the people of Israel. He would do all that, and then he would go into that place, and he would be hopefully um, his sins had been sacrificed you know, symbolically and, and his sin had been pushed back for one more year and he was clean. But if he wasn't, they had him wear little you know, bells on his tassels so that if he, the bells stopped ringing, they would drag him out and send in the second string. Right? I don't know if I would be on the first string or the second string. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'll just out here. I'll do ladle things. I don't want to go in there, right? And so this is a picture. And the Bible says in, in that place, in the Holy of Holies, that something happened symbolically and the curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. It was laid open, symbolically saying that the Holy of Holies is now accessible. Not on anything you did. You actually are the one who put up the curtain. And I'm tearing the curtain down. And I'm letting you come in. But not, not on your own behalf. You can't come in. You can't come in your way. You can't come in with the things you've done. You can't bring a sacrifice big enough because none of them are big enough. But I've made a sacrifice that if you believe me, everything that is built into this covenant, everything that all the benefits of this covenant become yours because you believed that I am telling you the truth, that I am good and I'm going to be a father to you. That was the picture that Israel was, was, was painted on that day. So why is that important? The, the covenant of the, the law was another covenant. The covenant was given to Israel. It was revocable. So what does that mean? It meant if you do this, then you get this. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. So much so that Israel sinned so much as a nation, at one point, God issues a decree of divorce to them. How bad do you have to be for God to want to divorce you? <laughs> and again, it was symbolic. And so, so, but it, the law was revocable, and it was not eternal because the Bible says numerous places. Again, I don't have time to go into all that, but if you want to do a study on this, it's powerful. But at some point, he says the law was until the seed comes, until the Messiah was born, until the Messiah came to save us from our sins. Until Messiah comes, the law is going to be in place. I don't know if you guys know this or not. We're coming up on Christmas. We're going to talk about it a lot. The Messiah came. It's in the past, like 2,000 years ago, really long time ago. But some of us, hear this, are living as if he never came, and we're still under the law. And that's the danger if we don't teach into this, and if you don't have an understanding of how you relate to the law and how the law relates to you as a believer, you will find yourself coming underneath a covenant that was never made for you that it has been revoked, that it was up until Messiah come and Messiah came. But hear this, the law has never been evil, never will be. The Bible said the law was not taken away, the law was fulfilled in Jesus. Massive difference than taking the law away because somehow the law failed. And we're going to talk about that. 
Big difference when Jesus says, the Bible says that Jesus came, the Messiah came, and he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law in himself and then gave to you and I the benefits of all of that covenant for free. The only thing you have to do is believe him. So how do you become a new creation? You believe. It's so simple and so easy, but it's not automatic, right? And you're like, well, do I? I think I believe him. Well, stop thinking and believe. <laughs> Why do, am I doing that? I don't know. Figure that out. Work out. The Bible says work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean work your salvation. That's what it means. It says work it out. Have you trusted in Jesus to take you away from the wrath to come because there is a, a, an axe laid at the root of a tree that will bear no fruit. <laughs> and God's not playing, right? We know this is true. There is a real hell. It was never made for us. It was made for the devil and his angels. But the Bible says it opens his mouth wider all the time to receive all the people who go into it. Why? Because they are eternal and hell is the only place you can be in eternity without God. It's the only place. And that's, what it, that's all hell is about. Made for the devil and his angels, why? Because the devil said, if, if I, would rather serve, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. You ever heard that phrase? So God said, not a problem. I'll create a place just for you. And so it's a real deal, right? So why, is that all, why does that matter? The law was given because, here's why, why it's so important, and why if we're not careful, we get caught up into this, and we, and we lose our, we just spin off, and we lose everything, all the peace, all the hope, we just lose it all because we think it all matters, and, it, it, and it's all dependent on me. So the law was given because Israel refused to believe the truth of Abraham. Think about this. All you had to do was believe that God was good. Abraham, the Bible said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The covenant was cut. Abraham said, God said, I'm going to come. I'm going to give you all these benefits. All you have to do is believe in me. Believe that what I said is true. Believe that I'm not a liar, that I'm going to tell you the truth. Because you look back into Genesis, and what did the devil say to the, to the people there? He said, did God really say? Is God really? He was trying to give those first two people something they already had. And the enemy still does that to us, especially as believers today. He wants to promise you peace through your efforts. He wants to promise you provision through your efforts. All the promises of the covenant, he wants to promise you those things. The devil does, but it's always through something you can do. And to become a part of a new, this new covenant, you are forced to humble yourself and submit to the fact that there is nothing you can do to bring about any good thing in your life. Nothing. But, thanks be to God, someone did it on your behalf. And all you have to do is believe it. And it's so simple and so challenging at the same time. So what does that look like? Um, Hebrews 8 goes after this. You want, you want to get into it. Hebrews is a lot about this because he's writing to Jewish people around this, these concepts. He says, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, right? Talk, he's talking to them about the law at this point. No place would have been sought for another. So listen to what happened. But God found fault with the people. Now hear this, God never found fault with the law. The law was a perfect representation of who God was. The standard was perfection. We're going to get into that. And, and, he, and what happened is God looks down. He said, here's the law. Here's, their, here's what they have to do. Here's what was so powerful about that. They, they refused to believe in the goodness of God and have faith in God and get the benefits from believing he was good. There was nothing they had to do but believe. 
They could not do that because they wanted to do something in their own strength. So he gives them something to do that required no faith. Go and do these things. Do right. Ten commandments. Actually, there's 613. Do these things. If you do them, you'll be holy, righteous. Good luck. <laughs> right? I'm paraphrasing. So they go and try it, and what happens? They fail miserably over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it was impossible to keep the law. The point of the law is it's impossible to keep the law. Once you understand that, what you do is you fall on the mercy of a God who is a merciful God. But if you try to do it in your own strength, one of two things will happen. If you're good at following rules, you become a Pharisee because you can, you can look good on the outside but be evil on the inside. You're good at following rules. And you also get really judgmental because you look down your nose because somewhere in your own you know, lizard brain, you have declared that you're actually keeping the law when you're not. You've lied to yourself, you believe the lie, and you become super religious and you're not helpful. <laughs> I'm trying to be kind. Or if you're not good at following rules, you just give up. And you go, it can't be done. I'm going to do the best that I can. Right? And that's the two places that people fall into. So the problem is, when we give our life to Christ, we cannot do that without believing what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. And it's nothing that we can do. The Bible says it's not by works so that no one can boast. No one can say, I helped Jesus do this. Nobody. It, it, you have to believe with all everything that's in you that you were helpless and Jesus came and poured out his goodness in your life. You have to believe that or you can't get saved. But what happens immediately after is the devil comes and convinces you, or if you grew up in religion, you get this in your head, or it's preached to you that, now, yeah, Jesus may have saved you, but if you're going to make him happy, you're going to have to do all these things to make God happy. You're going to have to, you know, you have to do the right thing all the time. You can never miss it, because if you miss it, are you really saved? Are you? Do you really love God? I mean, if you really love God, would you be doing that? Anybody ever had that happen? I've, I, I've said that to people as a pastor in my early days, and I thought, wow, I was literally the devil <laughs> when I was doing that. I was the accuser of the brethren when I was doing that, and I didn't realize it because I was literally taught that in Bible college. So as, the more I read the Bible, the more I understood what grace was, it began to change the way I think. So here's what's so powerful. If the law was given why was it given? If we begin to understand this, what's so powerful about you as a believer is you will no longer place yourself back under the law. Because when you place yourself back under the law, you're trying to get something that God has already given you for free. So you know what it does? It forces you into a place where rather than have a relationship with a God who loves you and wants what's best for you, you withdraw yourself from that relationship because you don't feel like you're pleasing him and you try to please him, and what you do is increasingly move further away from him, and you don't have a relationship with the God who paid the price so that you could have a relationship with him. You keep trying to pay for something that's already yours. Anybody ever had their car paid off? It's an interesting question. Did you pay it off yourself? Okay, that's one version of it, right? Anybody had someone else pay their car for them? <laughs> right? Did you keep making the payments? Some of you guys are like, I totally did because I'm an idiot. No, <laughs> you would never do that, right? But we do this all the time as believers. We keep trying to make the payments under the law, 
to obtain something that God has already given us. And when I finish, we're going to talk about what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to, and we're going to wrap it up with that. So I'm going to give you three things that the law was given to do. The purpose behind the law, there's more, but three major ones. The first one is this, to demonstrate God's standards of righteousness. Here's what he was saying. You don't get to decide what's right and wrong. You don't get to do that. God has already done that. He laid the law down. Most of our legal system is based on Judeo-Christian principles, most of that being the Torah, um, 613 different laws, laws about property, laws about relationship, laws about um, business. All these laws have come from, most, most of that has come from those areas, but it was never subjective. You, God said, I'm going to give you what's right and wrong. I'm going to give you a picture so that you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know what God's standards of righteousness for. You can't determine it yourself. You don't, you don't get to decide what is right. And yet, the Bible says, in the time of the judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that as a huge thing in the culture today. My truth and your truth. There is no such thing. There is the truth and my opinion and your opinion. And my opinion and your opinion make zero difference. Zero difference to the truth. What we're really saying is I have a perspective. I'm happy to have a conversation around that. But your perspective is submitted to the truth of God. doesn't matter what you say. doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is whether it's true or not. If you're believing, and Paul even went so much to, to, to point this out as, as being a Christian. He said if what you're believing about Jesus isn't true, he said of all people, Christians are the most to be pitied. Why? Because we're, we're, we're putting our faith in something, not just for this life, but also for eternity, and it's not true. And I remember when I became a believer, I was very skeptical in the beginning, and I said, I don't want to believe a lie because somebody's good at talking, right? They convinced me of something because they're good at an argument, because if I can be argued into something, I can be argued out of it. But the truth is, ama- I've said this many times, the truth is an anvil on which many a hammer has been broken, because the truth will never, never fail. There is a reality, and you don't get to determine what it is. And that's part of the purpose of the law. You don't get to decide what's right and wrong. Your version of right and wrong means nothing to God. That's why he presented this. He said, I'm going to give you a picture of what's right and wrong so there will be no doubt that you are missing the mark. It's a powerful, powerful thing. The standard is perfection because God is perfect. Listen, to this is 1 Timothy 1.8. It says, we know that the law is good. See, it was, the problem wasn't the law. He found fault not with the law but with the people. He said, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Here's the kicker for you and I. Most of us don't know how to use the law properly. So the enemy takes advantage of that and uses the law against us. So what does that look like? We also know, he said, that the law is not made for righteous people. The point being, before Jesus came, there were no righteous people. (laughs) Right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Ten Commandments in in Exodus is actually 613 different laws, moral law, civil law, um, all kinds of different laws. And God's saying, I'm going to show you what the standard is so there will be no doubt. You're going to know if you miss the mark. Secondly, the law was given so that we could be aware that we are sinners. This seems like common sense, but it's not sometimes. Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Nobody is declared righteous. Listen to this. No one is declared righteous by doing right things. Especially right things that you've decided were right (laughs) and totally ignored what God said was right. Because remember, the prophets came and said, there's going to come a time when right will be perceived as wrong and wrong will be perceived as right. And it's glorified. We see that already in our culture. 
right? So there's a standard. Here's, here's the kicker, Romans 3.20. Through the law, we became conscious of our sin. So the law said, here's, here's, here's perfection. Here's the standard. Here's what's required of you. How are you doing? If, if you want to use the law to talk to someone who isn't a believer, they'll find a hundred ways to justify themselves. I said this many times. What I used to do was I said, look, I may be bad, but, and at the time, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer had just been found guilty of all the things, terrible things he did, and I said, I may be bad, but I ain't never ate nobody. <laughs> right? So what did I do? I, I said, you know what? I'm standing at the Grand Canyon, and I can throw a rock farther than Jeffrey Dahmer. I, I would imagine most of us could, right? I can throw a rock farther than him, but, but neither one of us are, are getting anywhere close to the other side because the standard is perfection. Maybe I did a little better than him, Maybe you do a little better than others. Maybe you were brought up in a, in a moral home. Wonderful. Has nothing to do with your standing with God. But if I'm better than most, I judge the ones, right? If I'm good, I judge the ones that are not. If I'm not, I become a hippie. <laughs> and I just flow, Because right? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, but I know better. I'm not going to be, ever be able to obey the rules, so I just don't. So the third thing is this, simple. To expose the universal need for salvation. Now, what I, what I, it sounds like all these things are the same, but they're not. They're subtleties. But here's the big kicker about this one. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. See, if you use the law for the right purpose, whatever the law is saying, it's saying to people who are under the law. Who are under the law? Those who are not under the law of love, which is what Jesus came and did. The new covenant, it supersedes the old. Jesus came to fulfill the old, and now there's a new covenant in place for those who believe in Jesus. Otherwise, you're still under this one, right? So he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, listen, so that every mouth may be silenced. So here's a trick. You're sharing with someone about who they are, you know, how they're doing with their journey with the Lord. A simple question. Just take them through the Ten Commandments. Say, hey, how you doing? You know, at some point, God's going to judge you for the things you do right and wrong. Um, there's a standard. The standard is perfection. How are you doing? And they'll go, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm doing better than most, not as well as others. So, so I just ask them, um, uh, do you covet? I don't know what that means. Do you want something other people have? Yeah, that's called American, <laughs> right? So most people are like, yeah, well, I, I think I've done that. I'm like, well, have you, ever, have you ever committed adultery on your spouse? No, I've never done that. I'm like, you ever lusted after a woman? Yeah, well, Jesus said the same thing. Huh. <laughs> well, um, have you ever killed anybody? No, I've never done that, right? Have you ever had fault against them in your heart? I mean, your fault against a brother in your heart? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been angry with your brother? Whether cause or not cause, I have done that. Jesus said the same thing. Because the issue Jesus kept coming after was, the issue is not what you can do on the outside. The issue is what's actually going on, on the inside. It's not the, what you can control and show other people. It's what's really true about who you are on the inside. That's what Jesus is going after. He says, um, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Romans 7, 13, did that which is good, he's talking about the law, because the law's not bad. The law's good. He found fault with the people. He said, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul said, until I understood that there was a law that says don't covet, I didn't realize I was coveting. Why? Because I'm, I'm trying to get along in life, and so I'm doing the best I can, and I feel guilt, shame, and condemnation because I'm guilty, full of shame, and condemned 
The problem is we still feel that after we become a believer. And I'll look at that and go, now you're using the law inappropriately. What the law is designed to do to get you to a Savior got you to a Savior, and you're still using it to get you to a Savior when you already have a Savior. But we still do that, right? So here's a description of legalists. They felt like they were, this is who Jesus went after. They felt like they were keeping the law. This is Jesus, Matthew 5 and 6. He speaks, he's talking about the, uh, uh, the Beatitudes, the blessings of the kingdom. He's promising the kingdom's coming. And then he's, he, in, in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, he switches and begins to talk about the law. And he says to the Pharisees who said they were keeping the law, are you really? Let's check that out. So he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees who were the most righteous presenting people on the planet, he said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If it causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You know what people say? Well, he didn't mean that literally. Yes, he did. His point wasn't, oh, I'm just trying to give you an allegory. His point was, you keep saying you're keeping the law and you are lying to yourself. And because you're lying to yourself, you think somehow in your own power you have kept the law, so now you become judgmental to those who cannot keep the law and are at least honest about it. And that's where religious people fall, and they're all over the place. And the way you can tell is they look like they've been baptized in vinegar because they're all like puckered up. You know, their face is puckered up because their heart's puckered up, right? And they're broken and they're hurting inside, but they're proud and arrogant and somehow think that in their own power they're going to save themselves because I don't really need God. And a lot of that stems from they don't know him, because, and they don't know him because they don't want to know him because they're fearful. There's a million reasons why people get that way. But the danger is we cannot, we cannot get that way ourselves. Luke 18, 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the key verse is in verse 13, uh, Luke 18, 13. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. So the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like Rodney. (laughs) I follow the law, do all the right things, but not like Rodney, right? And Rodney's over there going, I'm being honest with myself. This is what he's, sorry, Rodney, I didn't pick on you. (laughs) But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He was humbled, right? But the law had humbled him. It had shown him the truth about his own heart, and he agreed with it. And he said, he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee was also a sinner, but he didn't ask for mercy because he thought he'd accomplished his salvation in his own strength. He had fulfilled the law, but he hadn't. At best, he had fulfilled the law by, in his version of it, he had committed all these offenses, but he'd offered the proper sacrifices on his behalf. That did not make him not a lawbreaker. That that created the picture of you can't do it, and because of that, a sacrifice is going to come. Ultimately, is going to come and pay once for all, and Hebrews talks about that, once for all, sin will be paid for by what Jesus does on the cross. Right? So the last thing that the law did was to show that the inheritance does not come through the law, but by grace and faith. So listen to Romans 9.31. We're almost done. It says, But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, that's a very important phrase, have not attained their goal. By pursuing right living, and we do this in the South, and, moral, and moralism is the worst challenge to, to Christians in the South. 
Because it's this, it's literally this. Who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, pursued doing the right thing as the way of righteousness. Jesus said, you did not attain your goal. Well, actually, Paul said, you did not attain your goal. It goes on, listen to what it says. Why not? Don't you think that's a good question? It says, because they pursued it not by faith, in other words, believing in what God said to them, but as if it were by works. In other words, if you think you can obtain God's goodness and God's kindness and God's mercy by anything that you've done, you have totally missed the point. And that's what the law was designed to do. The Jews thought that they could gain inheritance by the works, and they found that they couldn't. Romans 10 says, since they did not know the righteousness of God, they made their own, listen, and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I can do it myself. Only you can't. Christ is the culmination of the law, the fulfillment of it, so that there might be maybe righteousness for everyone who believes. See the pattern? Romans 3 comes back to the same thing. It says, now apart from the law, completely separate from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The whole of Scripture is teaching us this, but religious people have taught us something else. He says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets actually testified. Jesus said, you're looking for me in the book, and you completely missed me because you want to try to pursue this in your own righteous works. And you're not going to find God if you, if you think you can do it yourself. Good luck with that. It's not going to happen. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. So what's the work that you need to do? Believe in the one he sent, is what the New Testament says. Galatians 3.10, another big Scripture says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you break one law, James goes after this, if you break one law, you are a law breaker. Here's what we think. We think there's a really big target, right? Massive target. There is a, there is a bullseye. I never get anywhere near it, but you know I'm on the board, <laughs> right? So that's got to count for something, right? God's like, absolutely not at all. 100% accuracy is what's required. How, how are you doing? And the answer is, I'm not doing so well. God's like, I have good news for you. Jesus is the most incredible archer you've ever seen. Every shot he took, he hit center of the bullseye. Every single one. He did not sin in one. He, he endured all the temptation that you and I endure and never sinned once. And because of that, his sacrifice was accepted once for all on all of our behalf. And just like Abraham, we became beneficiaries of a covenant that we did nothing to make. See how it works? No one kept the law perfectly. So let me, let me finish with this simple thing. Jesus set me free from something to something. He set me free from the bondage of sin. John 8, 36 so, says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How are you doing? Are you free indeed? Do you feel free? <laughs> and one way you can say, hey, how am I doing under the new covenant is Am I feeling the freedom that came from the new covenant? Because if not, there may be some accusations against me from the enemy that I have believed. Some, some untruths about my identity as we went after it in this, this morning in worship. There's something I'm believing that's not true. Because Jesus said, whom the Son set free is free indeed. I hear people come to me and say, I've had this happen numerous times. They say, uh, Dave, you know, I'm just an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic. I'm like, well, you and Jesus disagree, so I'm, I'm not going to believe him. To whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
Should you avoid bars and maybe don't drink anymore? Yeah, sure, go for that. I have no problem with that. But if you think under your own power that you can step away from the bondage of the law, all you'll do is create another bondage that is acceptable. And that's what so many people do in that scenario. The bondage of sin is taken away. You are no longer captive. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You want to earn it, the wages are death. You want to receive a gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The guilt and shame of sin have taken away. This is a big one. He forgives and liberates from shame and guilt. He removed your sin, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. You know how, that, how far that is? It's still going. That's how far that is. And that's the point. You are no longer, longer, you should no longer be under guilt, shame, and condemnation. If you are, more than likely, you have placed yourself back under the law. Why? Well, what if I sin as a Christian? Okay. The Bible literally speaks to that. It says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Right? He is the propitiation, not he was, he is the propitiation. He has taken away our sin and the guilt and shame and condemnation of the sin. So then we say, like most people, does that mean I can keep sinning? Well, I don't know, can you? How do you feel when you sin? If you're okay with you sinning, you probably have not become a Christian. Because you're like, ah, it's no big deal, I'm sinning, nobody cares, it's not a big deal. That's not true. But if you, can, if you sin as a Christian, you know what? That feels wrong. It's because you weren't made for sin. It's because you have a new heart and a new nature. And every time you sin, it violates that, and you feel, the, you feel that. But if you feel judgment from that, then you have not understood what Jesus did on the cross. There is no longer any judgment for you. God is not going to judge Jesus on the cross for all of your sin and then also judge you for your sin. He's not going to do it. So does that mean it's okay to sin? Of course not. It's not okay to sin. John goes after this and he writes, he says, I write to this to you little children. He's saying, you're kind of little babies in Christ and you still don't understand God's righteousness, how to submit to it. He says, I write this to you, to those of you, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. I write this to you so that you don't sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. So can Christians sin? Of course they can. Christians do whatever they want to. They're free. Should you sin? Of course not. <laughs> but if you're okay with your sin, maybe go back and say, why am, okay, why am I okay with my sin? But if you sin and you feel bad, the question is, what do you do about it? What do you do about the sin that you just committed? What does that mean if you are under a new covenant and no longer under the law? If it's irrevocable, if irrevocable that means if you sin, God doesn't go, you know what? I revoke it. I take it away. My bad. I should have never, I should have never saved you. It's not what he does. The Bible says grace teaches us to say no to sin. The law commands us to not sin. We can't do it. But grace teaches us. As you follow Jesus, you recognize this, and grace begins to teach you, hey, there's a way out of this, but it's not the way you think. We're going to get into that in the next part of the series. So what does he save us to? The freedom to live. Something happens when you become a new believer. The capacity, sorry, the limit on your capacity is removed. It's all taken away. Why? Because in this world, you are limited by all the natural things that make you natural. But in Christ, you become supernatural. You begin to live or can live above nature. Why do we pray for healing? Because God can come and do something that I can't do naturally. 
He can heal people supernaturally. He can take the weight of sin, the fear of, of condemnation and death. He can take that off of you. That's what he wants to do. The freedom from sin increases your capacity to love, to have joy, to experience peace, and to enjoy life. John 10, 10, this is what he says. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And lastly, he says, I come to bring you freedom from this and freedom into the ability to serve. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork if we are believers, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. If you're looking for good works to please God, you've missed the point that you were created to do good works already. If I'm trying to do good works to make God happy, I don't understand grace. I don't understand the new covenant. And I have placed myself back under the law, and it's condemning. It's constantly condemning. It never lets you go. If you're living in constant guilt, shame, and condemnation, you have probably not understood grace. And you just need to learn and grow in it and, and understand it more. So let me finish with these two scriptures. This is Ephesians, sorry, Hebrews 9, uh, 10, 19. And I could literally preach a whole series from this one passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. He said, brothers and sisters, and he's saying, you are believers, Right? So he's saying, therefore, believers, since we have confidence, because we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not by our own ability, what we've accomplished, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Remember, I started with that. The curtain was a picture of Jesus' body being ripped apart right? The covenant coming, that God's creating the same covenant. This, the, old, the, the Abraham covenant was a picture of the new covenant. Same thing was happening. God's going to do all the work, and you get all the benefits of the covenant. What's your responsibility? All you have to do is believe. But that, in, that entails you submitting to the truth of God, not your own version of it. You can't do that. He goes on, he says, a new and a living way uh, opened us through the curtain his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Because he's taken away my sin and the judgment and condemnation, I can come boldly before the throne of grace is another place in Hebrews, and I can receive help in my time of need. So what does that look like? That means, what if I have new, I still have patterns from my old life bleeding into my new life, and I'm still committing sins? Does that make you a sinner? The answer is, it does not. Does it remove the benefits and the blessings of God on your life? No, it does not. People have said, well, what happens is God doesn't condemn you, but you lose fellowship with God. No, you do not. No, you do not lose fellowship with God. You get, you get what's the best way to say this? You get blinded because you've, Feel the conviction of your sin. You feel like you've done something wrong. You've violated your own nature. The enemy comes and accuses you of that and says, what kind of Christian are you? Maybe you're not even a Christian. And so you say, well, God, I can't look at you because I'm full of sin. And God says, what do you think the cross was for? So that you could come boldly into the throne room of grace, not the throne room of judgment. That's been done away for you as a believer. You come in before the throne of grace for help in time of need. When do you need, need help the most? When your patterns of sin have overtaken you and the enemy is accusing you. That's when you need him the most. And the whole picture of this is you can draw near to God with a sincere heart. You, can't, you don't have to come to God and, and halfway or partially be there. You can genuinely come into the presence of God knowing that your sin has been taken away. But what if I just sin some juicy sin? Then you're going to feel violated because you violated your new nature and that new heart. Of course you're going to feel that. 
But what is the actual truth about your standing with God? It has not been removed. It has not been removed. So it goes on. It says, you can come with full assurance that faith brings. You can't come with full assurance that you've done the right thing. You did it. So stop trying that. Come with full assurance. I believed in what Jesus did. The finished work of the cross has rescued me. And now I can come boldly into this throne room and the truth of grace begins to teach me how to say no to sin. See how that works? He goes on. He says, how does it work? Having our hearts sprinkled. So the picture is the, the priest would go into that room and he would sprinkle the blood on, on, the, on the holy on the uh, Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, the angels, and he would sprinkle the blood and that would act Again, as, as an appeasement to God, it would symbolize what was coming, but in the moment, it would push the judgment for sin back one more year. But when Jesus came, the Bible says he went into the throne room in heaven that the earthly throne room was modeled after, and he sprinkled his own blood, and it was enough. Listen to what it said. In full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. If you are still operating under a guilty conscience, you have missed what grace is for. And you are in a constant loop. The enemy has lied to you and put you into a constant loop in a battle within your own heart that you keep saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Let me help you. You are never good enough. And you're never going to be good enough. But the good news has got nothing to do with your goodness and everything to do with his. And that's the beauty of it. And what it does is it forces you to humble, to, to come before him humbly. You can't come with any pride before God if you understand what the law has tried to tell you as a sinner, that there is no hope for you. The only hope is if someone will do it for you. And the truth is that's exactly what it happened. He says he, he cleanses us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Listen to what he says. When this happens, when you really get this, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we, we profess. What does that mean? That means when you get grace and you sin and the guilt and condemnation that the enemy tries to bring as the accuser of the brethren tries to come on you, you hold the wheel unswervingly and he can't grab it and spin you off into the woods and you don't have to sing the song, Jesus, take the wheel, because Jesus has already taken the wheel. So you don't have to hold it with all your strength. That, does that make sense? So listen, the last part. We hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Not you. He. He is faithful. So you can place your trust completely, not just in what has happened in the past and what he's already rescued you from, but as you move forward and as you struggle with those old mindsets, those old patterns of sin that somehow are still there because you lived in them for so long, the Bible says that we have to take those thoughts into the captivity of Christ, right? In other words, we have to hold unswerving and we have to know this truth and go, Jesus, it's not about anything I've done. You've done it all for me. Have I finished this race? No. Paul said, I've not finished the race, but I press on towards a high calling. In other words, I know who God has made me to be. He's declared me that already. And then I walk into it as a son, and I become more and more mature. And I walk in greater understanding. And because of that, I walk in greater impact in my life. The limits begin to fall away. And God begins to talk to you about not your sin. Because here's the question. What would you do for God if you weren't fighting your own sin? What would the church do 
What would the church be in our day and age if we weren't constantly fighting sin? What if we believed that sin had been fought on our behalf and that it's been done away with, and as we receive grace and walk in it, we begin to understand more and more who we are in Jesus, and the enemy's challenge against us, the enemy's accusations stop working. What does that look like? You get out of the loop, and you begin to mature, and you walk, and you walk in more and more the power and the impact of God, and and the blessing for you personally is peace, wholeness, every good thing comes to your life because the limits are taken off. So I started this with 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'm going to finish it that way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it's not automatic. It's free, but it's not automatic. If anyone is in Christ, he is. Not will be one day when he goes to heaven. He is a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that all the old things that have held you back, that have kept you from the presence and the goodness and the kindness of God have been taken away? All the accusations against you are now a lie because you have believed in the one who did it all for you. Is that where you are? Or are you still struggling and putting yourself back under the law, saying somehow I'm going to earn God's love, I'm going to push through, and I'm going to get this done, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Let me just tell you this. If you're trying that, all you're doing is dealing with pride. At some point, you're going to have to lay your pride down because the biggest sin, ultimately, in the kingdom was the enemy saying, in his pride, I will set my throne above God's. That's the picture of idolatry. And we fall into it in our own strength, saying, Somehow, in my strength, I'm going to get God's approval. And you never will. And that's the purpose of the law, is to show you you need a Savior. You cannot do it. But even as believers, we keep trying to show God, God, I'll show you, I'm good enough. Some of that stems from our past, our childhood. As Karen was saying earlier, fathers that didn't represent God well, we're like, I'll make him happy. He'll love me. I'll I'll get his approval. I'll get his approval. I'll get his approval. That's not God. God says, you have my approval. You had it before you even tried. Before you, before, while you were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And now that price has been paid, and the only thing you have to do is believe it and then walk in all the fullness of the benefits of being a new creation. Why don't you stand with me? My prayer this morning is if you get this, you would deal with these issues. You would hold, begin to learn how to hold unswervingly to the truth that you have been cleansed from all righteousness all unrighteousness, and you have been deposited, taken from the kingdom of darkness and deposited in this kingdom of his dear son. What would we look like as a people, as a church, if we begin really to walk in that in a powerful way? That's exciting to me, and I pray that that's exciting to you as well. So Jesus, we love you this morning. And Lord, we just say thank you for what you've done on our behalf. And Lord, we lean in and say, Lord, we lay all that foolishness down of our trying to do this or trying to do that. And Lord, we just submit our hearts and our lives to you and say, Lord, Would you let your grace teach us what it means to say no to sin, to say no to missing the mark? Lord, and the picture is we begin to say yes to what what the mark actually is, to walk in approval, to walk in love, to walk in peace and in wholeness and in maturity, Lord. What does that look like? That's our heart is to see more and more of that in our own lives and the lives of those around us. And for that, Jesus, we say thank you. Teach us, show us. We want to walk in more of it. In your name we pray, amen. If you need prayer this morning, as always, we'd love to lay hands on you and believe God for great things in your life. Um, Come up to the front. We do that. Otherwise, have a wonderful week.